And good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the 13th chapter of Romans. And I invite you to follow as I read just a few verses. 13th chapter of Romans. They're beginning to read in verse 8, and I'm going to go as far as verse 10. The word of the Lord declares, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I want to do three things. I think it's the best way. I don't know if it's the best way, but it's the way we're going anyway. I want to do three things with with this text. I'm going to spend a few moments explaining explaining it. Think in terms of threes. I want to do three things. I'm going to explain it and give you basically three observations. And then secondly, just I think three, well, maybe four, just points of application real quick. And then thirdly, where, where I really want to get to, uh, camping on this text and wrestling with it and how it applies to what I perceive to be a a pressing need and a growing need in our day. Did you get all that? Think in terms of threes. I want to explain it, give you a few points of application, and then where I really want to get to is, yes, by way of application, how I think this text speaks to us in our hour right now and challenges us in, in several ways. So follow with me as I proceed from that vantage point uh, along those li- lines. And so we begin with explanation. We need to make sense of this text. What's it saying? And so again, three observations. And with these, we'll have the flow of the text unpacked, unraveled for us, and be able to understand what Paul is seeking to convey. The first observation I want to make simply as follows. Who are we to love? That's the great theme of the verses, isn't it? That much was obvious. Love. Who are we to love? First observation. Look at what Paul says in the eighth verse. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Begs the question in this situation, this context, right here, right now, this verse, who is the object of this love? Good question. Turn back to chapter 12, just for a moment. Look with me at verse 4. Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. There he is speaking exclusively of what? The church, the body of Christ. He still has the church in view in verse 9, still in chapter 12, when he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Are you seeing it then? Chapter 12, commandment, admonition to love. Who are we to love? The church, namely my brother. Back to chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Right down to the end of verse 9. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Into verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Okay, so I submit to you that in the 12th chapter, this call to love one another is a call to the church. It is a call directed at me to love my brother. In the 13th chapter, not so. This is a call to love one another. 
but he no longer has the church in view. He is thinking of the world. He is calling me to love my neighbor. So you got it? The church in chapter 12, I'm to love my brother. The world in chapter 13, I'm to love my neighbor. It leads to the question, who is my neighbor? There's an echo to it, isn't there? You've heard that one before. It's the lawyer, Luke 10. He comes to the Lord Jesus, and he wants to know the way to eternal life. And the Lord Jesus points him to the two greatest commandments. Right, here you go. You are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. It leads the lawyer to ask that pointed question. Who is my neighbor? Oh, our Lord Jesus, the wisdom. In him dwells the depths. Oh, the depths and heights of his wisdom. Let me tell you a parable. There's a man, he's a Jew, traveling, walking, Jerusalem to Jericho. Along the way, a band of thieves. They rob him, they beat him, they leave him for dead in the ditch beside the road. Three men happen by. First man, a priest, does nothing. Second man, a Levite, does nothing. Third man, ooh, I've got your attention now, a Samaritan, does everything. The Lord Jesus asks the lawyer, in this case, in this situation, who proved to be the neighbor of that wounded man? Well, the one who showed mercy. Go and do likewise. Now, did we miss it? Did we miss the main point? Christ inverts the question. The question the lawyer asks is, who is my neighbor? In other words, whom am I supposed to love? Whom am I supposed to help? Who is my neighbor? By the end of the parable, the neighbor is not the person who needs help. The man lying in the ditch. The neighbor is the man who helps. What's Christ's point? You ready for it in the vernacular? Don't ask such ridiculous questions. That's his point. <laughs> Completely irrelevant. Who cares? You see someone in need, you help. Who is my neighbor? Don't waste breath. Don't waste time. Don't dabble in things which are of such, no consequence whatsoever. Completely irrelevant to the issue. You see man in a desperate straits. You see a woman unbelievably afflicted. You help, and you prove to be the neighbor. There you have it. Who are we to love? We are to love our neighbor. Anyone God places in our path who is in need. Second observation I want to make is this. Why are we to love? Look again at verse 8. Oh, it's a debt. No one, anything except to love each other. We are to love our neighbors because it is a debt we owe them. That's what he says. Owe no one anything except to love. It is a debt you owe to your fellow man. It is a debt you owe to your neighbor. But understand this. It is not a debt you owe to your neighbor because of anything he has done for you. It is a debt you owe to your neighbor and a debt you can never repay because of what God has done for you. That's the point. How are we to love or why are we to love? Here's why. Romans 5 eight. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a debt we can never repay. And it is a debt that we then owe to our fellow man because of what God has done to and for us. Notice that verse. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, we could camp out here for an entire series. Just notice a few things. Notice the object of God's love. 
He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. I picked this out of a book recently. It's quite good. We have before us this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God. And instead of loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of attributing to him glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength, we just try to take his toys and run. That pretty much sums it up, folks. That's us. We are sinners by nature. Not only are we sinners in that we disobey this glorious God's law. Not just are we sinners in that we're sheep going our own way, doing whatever we want. That's bad enough, but it gets worse. We are ungrateful sinners that we take, take, take from this glorious God, breath, life, everything we enjoy, Never acknowledging, never thanking, never loving with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the predicament as sinners in which we find ourselves. And yet it is precisely these sinners who are the object of his love. Notice secondly, the measure of God's love. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One preacher has penned shredded flesh against unforgiving wood. It's a powerful image. Iron stakes pounded through bone and racked nerves. Joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer dead weight of the body. Public humiliation before the eyes of family and friends and the world, that was the death of Christ on the cross. Hear this, please. Through it all, this is what is so amazing. Through it all, he never hurled screams of rage toward the heavens. Never hurled screams, fits of rage toward the heavens. He never hurled threats of defiance toward the crowds. He never uttered sobs of self-pity. He never claimed his rights. He never even considered himself at all. He gave himself. There is the measure, the extent, if you like, of God's love towards sinners. Notice thirdly the result. We were, as Christians, I'm speaking to Christians, we were diseased and deformed. We have found healing. We were unclean and untouchable. We have found cleansing. We were dead. And we have found life eternal. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why are we to love? It's because we owe a debt we can never repay. And it is a debt we owe to our fellow man, not because of what he has done, but because of what God has done for us. Third observation I want to make is this. As we wrestle with the meaning of these verses, how... We are to love. So we're clear on who we are to love, why we are to love. Now, thirdly, how we are to love. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another, here's how, has fulfilled the law. What does that mean? It means many things. I want to emphasize two. The first is this. It means we love. Here's how we love. We love by doing no wrong in the sight of God. Where do I get that? I get that out of the ninth verse. The commandments, 
So we love another, we love our neighbor. This is the fulfilling of the law. And so Paul immediately goes to the commandments. He cites commandments 6, 7, 8, and 10. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So I know who I'm supposed to love. I know wh how I, why I'm supposed to love. I'm now very clear on how. I love by doing no wrong in the sight of God. I love by obeying God. I love by obeying God and obeying him, seeking the good of my fellow man. Notice, secondly, we love, says Paul, by pursuing for our neighbor what we want for ourselves. Where did I get that from? Right at the end of verse 9, where Paul quotes from the book of Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We love by pursuing for our neighbor what we want for ourselves. Get this. Not just what I want for me, but how I want it. When I want something, the zeal kicks in. The enthusiasm takes over. That's Paul's point. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to want for them what we want for ourselves. And we are to want it in the same way we want it for ourselves. How does this play out? As follows. Do you want respect? Show your neighbor respect. Do you want help? Help your neighbor. Do you want compassion? Be compassionate to your neighbor. Are you lonely? Befriend someone. Are you upset? Comfort someone. Are you hungry? Feed someone. Are you vulnerable? Protect someone. Are you getting the idea? At times, we don't really get the idea. Oh, I remember. It seems like another lifetime ago now. Different place, different time, almost a different person in many ways. But here was the conversation. This couple were leaving the church. Uh, her reason, no one loves me. Right? And out came the spiel of ways in which she thought people should be loving her and expressing her love. Uh, to which my response was what? This commandment. Well, that's what you want for yourself. How are you doing those things for others? Dumbfounded. Absolutely floored. No response whatsoever. That's Paul's point. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's face it. We all think we're number one. We want what is best for us. We want what is great for us, and we want it with such zeal and enthusiasm. Paul's point is, fine, that's how you're to love others. And you're to make those interests their interests, and you're to take that zeal and enthusiasm, and you're to direct it away from yourself and to direct it to others. That's how we are to love. And so we now know who we are to love, whoever is in need, and God places in front of us. We know why we are to love, because we are debtors by virtue of God's love to our neighbor. And we know how we are to love. We love by doing no wrong in the sight of God. And we love by pursuing for our neighbor what we want for ourselves. There you go. That's item number one done. I said at the intro, having introduced, explained this passage, what I wanted to do secondly is apply it, just briefly. I want it because the third thing is really where I want to get to this morning. Let me just give you three. I'm going to limit myself to three. Very, very straightforward, face value points of application. Here's number one. I want us to understand this. We aren't called to help everyone. That isn't what Paul is saying. Paul isn't saying we're called, commanded to help everyone. We, we would be abusing the text, misunderstanding it, misusing it, if that was our conclusion. That's liberating. It's very liberating. I'm not called to do everything. You are not called, my friend, to do everything. 
We're not called to meet every need. We're not called to answer every call. It's so liberating. We shouldn't criticize others for not doing what we're doing. We shouldn't criticize ourselves for not doing what others are doing. We have different gifts. We have different callings. We have different abilities. We have different opportunities. I hope we're clear on this. Loving our neighbor doesn't mean we provide social services for all the needy people in the world. It's not Paul's point. It's not Paul's point. We aren't obligated to help everyone. We can't help everyone. Loving our neighbor means we assist those whom God places in our path. Loving our neighbor means we assist those whom God brings into our sphere of influence in accordance with how he has gifted us, he has enabled us, he gives us callings, opportunities, so much diversity. So often we take a verse like this or a thought like this and we run away and we pound ourselves and beat ourselves to death with it and walk away feeling guilty. No, 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 no. Yes, it is a great calling. Yes, it is a high calling. Yes, it does call for self-examination once in a while, but it is also an extremely liberating calling. I'm to love my neighbor as God gives opportunity and as God brings people into my sphere of influence, this church's sphere of influence, then it is my calling to help. But how liberating that is. Second point of application I want to make is as follows. I thank God for you, all of us here at Grace Community Church. I really do. I thank God for the grace and for the mercy and for the compassion that is daily, weekly evident. I'm thankful, I'm thankful for your love for one another, firstly, yes, in the context of Grace Community Church. I just think of the last week or two I think of three or four, just come to mind effortlessly, of practical ways, meaningful ways, self-sacrificial ways in which segments and parts of this body have ministered to others. I can't share it because it's not for everyone's ears. Oh, but to be aware of it and see it happening and unfolding. Oh, to quote the Apostle Paul, I thank God in my every remembrance of you. I'm thankful when I think of GCC and not just the love for one another, uh, but the love for others in Somerville County, where we live. When we had the, was it Camp Arrowhead? Is that what it was called? The name escapes me. And those who gave of their time, off they shuffled down there to Camp Arrowhead to serve meals to, to kids. Can't communicate, can't even speak the language. Day off, Saturday, off they go. And the many ways in which this takes place here close to home. I'm thankful for the love and the compassion and the mercy that we see even beyond the confines of our local church, even our immediate within arm's length sphere of influence here in these surrounding counties to, to a bunch of orphan kids in a place called Guatemala. And the funds that go there monthly. And the people who take their holidays to go down there and minister for a week. And the way in which there is such willingness and readiness to give, to serve, to minister. Those who can't go, those who do go. I don't think anyone paid one cent toward their own fare or the cost of that trip. Others who can't go, giving. I'm not patting us on the back. I'm praising God for his grace at work through us as instruments. And my exhortation is do even more. There you go. Do even more. That we are to be compelled as people who believe in God's sovereign grace. Meaning what? We are debtors. That's all we are. You really ever realize that? You're a beggar, my friend. I'm a beggar. That's all I am. And that is the posture from which I must view others. That's the posture from which I must view my fellow believers. That's the posture from which I must view my neighbor. And as God gives me opportunity, 
Oh, then what a greater way, I can't think of one, than to express my love for him by seeking to pay a debt I can never pay. This love I owe to my fellow man. Oh, that's where Paul is pointing us in this direction. But I am thankful for us here at Grace Community Church. Third thing by way of application I want to emphasize is this. Loving our neighbor, and I've hinted at this already, is one of the principal means by which we glorify God. So it's perfectly in line with our mission statement here at Grace Community Church. To equip God's people, God's saints, to delight themselves in God's glory. And declare that glory to the nations. You hear the words of Christ in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is part of our mission statement at Grace Community Church. To delight in God's glory. Declare that glory. Yes, verbally, vocally, in affirming the truth and proclaiming the gospel. In declaring it with our lives. The way in which we minister to one another. The way in which we minister to those in need. So often, far too often, we hear these two offset against each other as if they were antithetical. Evangelism and meeting people's needs. Which is it going to be? It's a false antithesis. Why, why do we insist on polarizing things? Why do we insist on, on, on making things opposites or, or, or putting things in contradiction when in actual fact there is no contradiction at all? We are called to love. And we are called to love how? So that we glorify God. How? In the proclamation of the truth and in making our good works visible to all. That was the third thing I wanted to do. Check that off. Now, oh, get comfortable. This is where I want to be. Now, the third point. As I have wrestled with this, applying it to me, us here at Grace Community Church, and as I've thought through and thought over its application, I can't help but turn in a certain direction. I can't help just, just given where we are, Right now, 21st century, given the news cycle, given what we're facing, given what we're potentially facing, I can't help but go, go one way with this text and work through it for my own good, and I hope work through it for your good. Now, bear in mind what my main concern is. My main concern is our mission statement. We are to equip the saints, one another, to delight in the glory of God and declare that glory to the nations. If it doesn't meet that mission statement, guess what? I'm not really that interested. That's our mission statement. That is our goal. I have been perplexed of late for many reasons as to how we obey this command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself in such a way that we demonstrate our delight in God's glory, thereby declaring that glory to the nations. And I'm thinking of this when I add one little word to that verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what the word is? Islam. That's the word. Islam. And I get very uncomfortable when I add that word. And I'm just going to hazard a guess. Maybe I'm way out in left field. One or two of you get a little uncomfortable when I add that word. The moment begs us to deal with this. What's coming necessitates us to deal with this, be clear on this as a church, in light of our mission statement, in light of Scripture, especially the text right here open before us in Romans 13, and the text earlier in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. We live in strange days. It is, an, it is a controversial issue. I know that. On the one extreme, and I believe these are extremes, are those who believe that Islam is America's greatest threat and that America's leaders are too politically correct or personally feeble to deal with the issue. All right? Political pundits, you name them, line them up. If you listen to that kind of stuff, you're being fed it all the time. My advice to you is turn it off, shut it down. It's not doing you any good. The other extreme is this. Those who believe that Islam is benign, 
simply sullied by a few bad apples. The real problem lies in those Americans who are uninformed, intolerant, and narrow-minded, and who say too much. You'll hear that a lot as well out of some political pundits. My advice to you, what was it? Turn it off, shut it down, and just stop being fed by all this stuff. This is controversial because this nation is so polarized, everything becomes so politicized, and we're hearing stuff all the time. My concern is this. I want us to delight in God's glory and declare God's glory to the nations. How do I do that in fulfilling this command in relation to Islam, Muslims? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want to give you six points to work through, words of encouragement that I am presently working through. Some of these are still open-ended. Working through them. Some of them a little rounded than others, more rounded. T's are crossed, I's are dotted, grammar is checked, everything's fine. Some of them still works in progress, but here they are. I hope you know, understand why I'm doing this. I want to give this passage feet as it relates to a very contentious issue in our day. And I want us as a church to make sure we're adopting positions, opinions, postures that are actually align themselves with what we're supposed to be about as a church. All right? So here we go. Six. I encourage us. Six words of encouragement. There are actually seven. First one's too hot to handle, so I've dropped it already. Number one, which was number two, and you'll never know what number one was. I have a price. But anyway, number one. I encourage us to respond to aggression in a unique way. Our response has to be different from the world's, doesn't it? We're Christians, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I encourage us to respond to aggression in a unique way. Please understand me. You know where I stand when you look at the first seven verses of chapter 13. And the governing authority's responsibility. What, is, what, what, is, what does Paul say? That the, the governor, he is an avenger. To do what? Carry out God's wrath upon the wrongdoer. I, I understand that domestically. I also understand that internationally. I have no problem with a strong military response toward a group of individuals whose uh, express purpose is just wanton murder and destruction and perhaps global domination. I, I believe governing authorities have a responsibility to protect human life and at times even use force to protect human life. Okay, I, I do come down on that. My point is this. Our response ought to be different when it comes to regression. I'm not motivated, having just said what I said, I'm not motivated by a desire for personal revenge. I'm not motivated by a desire for global influence, American exceptionalism, territorial expansion, or tribal bloodlust. None of those things are what motivate me. I'm distinctly uncomfortable with the individual who casually, carelessly, flippantly states, carpet bomb all of them. No, I'm motivated by a God-honoring desire to protect and preserve the sanctity of life. At times that does necessitate force, just ask any police officer. And even times internationally, it necessitates force. But our response, no chest beating, no foot stomping, the spirit of, of revenge, no, 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 no. I'm motivated by a God-honoring desire to protect and preserve the sanctity of life. Second, encouraging, like the way I use that word, encouraging word is this. I encourage us to avoid stereotypes. Avoid them like the plague. A lack of knowledge and experience of a subject will cause us to accept opinions that are often simplistic, if not downright wrong. If I were to formulate my view of evangelicals on the basis of what I see in the media, the stereotype, here's what my conclusion would be. They are a bunch of irate people who say really ignorant things. 
I hate it when people stereotype me. I am to love my neighbor as myself. How dare I stereotype my neighbor? We do it all the time. We fall into stereotypes. Oh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is wrong, just downright wrong, to assume that all or even many Muslims are jihadi-loving terrorists. And to arrive at this conclusion simply on the basis of what we hear coming out of the mouths of political pundits. It's wrong to assume that the worst part of a group represents the whole group. Here's a question. Do I know any Muslims? Do you know any Muslims? Have you ever had a Muslim in your home? Have I ever had a Muslim in my home? Have I ever engaged in some sort of meaningful, you know, over a long-term period of time, some sort of meaningful discourse or relationship with a Muslim? If I'm not careful, if my, you know, if my answer to that, that question is no, then what am I formulating my opinion upon? What am I basing it upon? If I actually have no personal knowledge or experience of the subject at hand, how do I arrive where I arrive? How do I end up where I end up? We need to be very careful. If I'm not careful, when I speak disparagingly, therefore, of entire groups, I might actually simply be revealing my own ignorance and perhaps even my deep-seated prejudice. I am to love my neighbor as myself. I encourage us to be careful and cautious to avoid stereotypes. Thirdly, I encourage us to remind ourselves that Muslims are created in God's image. They're created in the image of God, just as we're all created in the image of God. What does that mean? It at least means the following. I ought to treat them with concern, respect, Fairness, dignity, and compassion, especially if I bear the name Christ, I ought to treat them with concern, respect, fairness, dignity, and compassion. The fourth word of encouragement is this. I encourage us to ready ourselves to love our Muslim neighbors. Not so likely here in Glenrose, Texas. I acknowledge that. But uh, it might happen. Uh, it might turn out that God brings someone of that religion into our little sphere of influence. And I, I, I beg us to ready ourselves, to, to have thought it through beforehand. Uh, not just insofar as Muslims are concerned, but Hindus or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or any other religious group, any other ethnic group with which we're not that familiar I, I exhort us and encourage us to have thought this through. How I will minister to a Muslim neighbor. If my main concern in life is defending my personal rights and civil liberties, I won't be up to the challenge. If my main interest is protecting my personal peace and affluence, I certainly won't be up to the challenge. If my main pursuit is my comfort and entertainment, I won't be up to the challenge. Uh, loving my neighbor as I'm called to love my neighbor. We're thinking here of Muslims. This means what? Getting to know them. Seeking to understand them. Praying for them. Ministering to them in practical ways. Protecting them if need be. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are all things I would want for me. With gusto. It is therefore what I should pursue for my neighbor, whoever he is. It also involves compelling them with tears to believe in Christ and warning them with tears of God's coming judgment. I can't hate people and evangelize people at the same time. I fear too many Christians in this country are trying to. I can't hate people and evangelize people at the same time. It is impossible. 
Let me add to that a little bit. I don't trivialize the differences between Islam and Christianity. Some do in our day. They're making a huge mistake. We're worshiping the same God. We most certainly are not worshiping the same God. We are Trinitarians. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe Jesus Christ is God. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, gave himself as a substitutionary sacrifice upon Calvary's cross. We believe we can only be saved by grace through faith in Christ. We don't worship the same God. For that matter, we don't worship the same God as the Jews. They don't believe any of those things, do they? They're worshiping an idol. Muslims are worshiping an idol. We affirm they're all worshiping idols. And we don't apologize for that. We don't try to find some sort of common ground and assure everybody that we're just kind of worshiping the same God. Let's hold hands, find our points of commonality, and get on with it. No, 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 no. We are compelled. We are compelled by our love for Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us to make his name known and make it very clear there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must, must, must be saved. But let me add to that a little bit. Still here on the fourth point. I don't champion Christ. Not just when it comes to Muslims, any other faith, religious group. I don't champion Christ in an attempt to win an argument. It wouldn't be very loving. I speak as someone who has been deeply broken and radically transformed by God's mercies. I celebrate that Christ absorbed God's wrath for me. I celebrate that Christ is my righteousness before a holy God. And I proclaim that this is true of everyone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, it's true of you this morning. You've just happened to wander in here and you're not a Christian. Please understand the message we affirm. Please understand the gospel we celebrate. We are sinners. God is holy. We are not holy. And the only thing we can be sure of is impending judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross, let me use that word again, it is so fitting, absorbed the judgment of God, absorbed the wrath of God for those who will repent of their sin and receive him as Lord and Savior unto the salvation of their soul. That is the message we proclaim. We don't apologize for it. And if we want to love our Muslim neighbors and love anyone else, we will be very eloquent We'll be very clear. We'll be very dogmatic in a loving way when it comes to share, sharing and making this message known. Fifth encouraging word is this. I encourage us, in light of this text, the issues at hand, to reason carefully through complex issues. Reason carefully. Many issues are complex, and I would be misleading you if I uh, suggested otherwise. I encourage us to reason carefully through complex issues. A case in point is the Syrian refugee crisis. There's a case in point. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right? So what does that mean? That means I seek what's in the best interest of the common good of this country. I'm a citizen. Well, hope to be a citizen someday, aspiring to be a citizen. I live here anyway. And so I seek what is in the best interest of my fellow citizens, the common good. I don't want to see people in this country become the victims of wanton violence. Is it possible for this country's refugee program to be abused? Yes. And so do I expect the governing authorities to do their best to ensure that it isn't abused? Yes, to say or think otherwise, I think a failure to love my, my neighbor. I think that's just common sense. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But it also means I seek what's in the best interest of people fleeing from unspeakable atrocities. If I were one of them, 
I had hoped someone would help me. If right now I were fleeing with Alice and Laura and Emma, I hope someone somewhere would have a little compassion. What I want and how I want it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what burns me, all right? I'm going to speak openly. Here's what really burns me. And I think we need to call them out on it. Everything is politicized. Our current government, federally. Everything is politicized. And so everything is polarized. What does that mean? What happens? Prudence on the one hand, compassion on the other hand, are presented as two incompatible options. That's what we're hearing. That's what we're being fed. You can't do both. You're either prudent or you're compassionate. To be prudent means we don't let anyone in. To be compassionate means we let everyone in. That's how it's presented. And again, that's how the political pundits present it to us. These are the options put before us by most politicians. Hear me, please. Prudence is no hindrance to compassion. And compassion is no enemy of prudence. The two are not incompatible. You're telling me that a room full of semi-intelligent men who actually, and women who actually had the ambition of helping a group of people in which there's potentially threats to the common good of this country couldn't work through in a reasonable manner how to best do both? Of course they could. They're not interested in it. Why? Because everything is polarized. Everything is immediately either Republican or it is Democrat. And it becomes so political right from the outset. And that is how it is spoon-fed to us. I dare say as Christians, we should call our politicians out on that. If we really want to be their conscience, it's inexcusable, inexcusable that so many intelligent men and women could not get together, lay aside their political differences just for three days and resolve this issue once for all with prudence and compassion. That is not unreasonable. My goodness, that is perfectly reasonable to any reasonably thinking individual. Oh, as Christians, we should be leading the charge in that regard. As Christians, that should be what we're expressing. Rather than running down to that extreme, running to that extreme, oh, out come the Facebook posts and this, that, and everything else. Oh, can we just sit back, reason through these things objectively in the light of Scripture as believers. And yes, act then as the nation's conscience accordingly. Oh, my sixth word of encouragement is this. I encourage us at Grace Community Church, according to our mission statement, to expect God to do great things for his glory among the Muslims. There are 1.2 billion of them. 1.2 billion. Is that a threat or an opportunity? Is that something to run and hide in your cubby hole, some sort of become sort of some sort of doomsday prophet? Or is that a call to engagement and taking up the cross? Is that a call to become very politicized? How do I protect myself? Or is that a call to see how the church might engage this lost people's group with the only hope of eternal salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm thankful. I am thankful. We don't, I don't think there are any Muslims living here in Glen Rose, Somerville. There might be. You know, maybe the Lord will bring some here someday, somehow. I don't know. We, who's our neighbor? Well, we've got our neighbor. We've got what we've got here. And yeah, we try to do some things abroad in places like Guatemala. That's great. But here at Grace Community Church, here's what I hope we are aware of. Here's what I hope we are aware of. We support three families. Did you know that? We support three families working this very day in the midst of Muslims. Three, maybe more, Rick, but at least three that I can think of. Two in Africa, one in the Middle East. We actually support a family working right now with Syrian refugees. Did you know that? Here's, here, here's what I want to say. Pray for them. You get the little inserts once a month, right? Don't throw them out. Pray for them. Find out who's who and what's going on. Because you can't post this stuff. We can't just indiscriminately send email with news and updates from these people for security reasons. But you ask around and find out who's who, what's going on where. 
Pray for them. Write to them. Encourage them. Support them. And celebrate with them this simple, glorious truth. God's name will be great among the nations. I know it's true. Why? Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, I encourage us to expect God to do great things for his glory among Muslims. Did you get all that? That was a lot. We explained the text, wrestling with those issues. Who are we to love? Why are we to love? How are we to love? We moved into application, I think just a time of celebration for what God is doing in our midst, and yet an exhortation for us all, outdo one another in showing honor and love one for another and for our neighbor. And something I think certainly worth wrestling through, such a contentious, controversial, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. That sort of issue that's going to be with us for a long time. How do I think through this as a Christian? How do I evaluate this in the light of Scripture? And what should I be thinking through, wrestling with, as I seek to love my neighbor, Islam, with this goal in view, to delight in the glory of God and to declare that glory to the nations. Oh, our Father, we acknowledge who among us is up to these things. Many difficulties and complexities that we haven't even begun to address. And yet we hide ourselves in you, the only wise God. So thankful we can come to you, address you, cling to you as our Father. So thankful that we are your children. And we pray our Father, this is our prayer that we might live as children to such a degree that people look on, see our good works, and glorify our Father in heaven. That's our plea. We can't do it in and of ourselves. We pray that you be merciful. We pray that you equip and enable us. We pray that you fill us with the Holy Spirit. We pray that you make us people of the book, thinking people, in accordance with your word, not the many messages that we hear today coming at us from all angles, but help to develop and cultivate biblical wisdom in us, commensurate with all that you've entrusted to us, and certainly commensurate with the spread and proclamation of your glory. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.